new AI dawn is here. Uh, not so much grandeur this time, but, but consequence is in people's minds. Um, the AIs are going to take over our jobs, our lives. Um, and people are giddy with either anxiety or excitement um, about what's being unleashed. Um, so I want to talk about that second wave today. Um, I'm not going to talk about ethics except right at the end. Um, I just want to talk about what is actually happening because I think the ethical questions about the uses and capacities and implications and worth of, of, of these systems can only be addressed if we know what they are, what we're dealing with. Um, so um, back in the first wave, um, classical AI was founded on basically on four basically Cartesian or assumed to be Cartesian assumptions. Um, this assumption, this uh, approach was was immortalized in Ho John Hoagland's um, indelible phrase, good old-fashioned artificial intelligence, or GoFi. <laughs> That's what everybody calls it now. Um, four theses that the essence of intelligence is thought, that the model of thought is logical inference based on clear and distinct ideas. Perception is at a lower level of thought. Even animals do it. That can't be very hard. And uh, a kind of formal model of ontology, that the world consists of discrete objects exemplifying properties and standing in relations. Now that was what was the GoFi thing. There was actually another insight that I think underwrote GoFi, which is actually much broader, which is sometimes confused with it, um, which emerged out of, well, out of a bull person, Turing and others, that you can build a system with four, four properties. Um, crucial properties. One is it works mechanically on straightforward physical principles. So it's not spooky, doesn't require divine intervention, and so on and so forth. Number two, that parts and the behavior are, are constitutively semantically interpretable in terms of meanings that are related to the outside world. So you understand these systems through interpretation. Um, you understand how they work uh, mechanically, um, which drives a wedge net between what they do and, and, uh, and, uh, and how they work. Um, for example, the systems might calculate the prime factors of a large number or find the shortest route visiting all American state capitals or determining whether an electromagnetic vessel can hold nuclear fusion material or, or, or something like that. Those things are described not in terms of what's going on in the machine, but in terms of the interpretation of their behavior. And that's basically the same for true of us. If I say to you what's in your mind, you say I'm thinking, and then you follow that with the word that, and then you start talking about the world. I'm thinking that. I don't know, the ice cream truck will turn up today, or North Korea will fire a missile before this talk is over, or, or whatever it is. You don't think, look, I've just increased my brain cortisol level by 7% and sent 10 to the 7th uh, signals across my corpus callosum or anything like that. We have no introspective access to the structure of the mechanism. Um, so that's how minds are understood under interpretation. These, are, these systems are understood under interpretation. So that's the second point. We can build systems like this. Um, Third point I want to bring forward is that the semantic relations to the world, in terms of which we understand them, are not causal effective relationships. Um, I challenge my undergraduates all the time to, either with my life or a billion dollars or whatever I feel like betting at that point, um, to build the following iPhone app, which that would make them billionaires, that it would beep every time you download it and run it on your iPhone, it would beep every time you thought about it. I'm sure it would sell. The problem is it can't be built. It can't be built because God said no, basically. Being thought about is not a detectable property. Um, in fact, reference is not a detectable property. It's not causal. It goes through 10-foot walls of lead and so on and so forth. Um, I think reference is real, and it kind of um, means that reference falls outside the compass of science in terms of science being causal explanation. Um, 
So I think that's a serious fact, and it's going to have a serious fact for the. It's going to be a serious fact about the systems we build. Um, and then the third, the fourth thing is that they're normatively governed, which means that not only do we interpret these things in terms of their semantic relationships to the world, but but semantics is not symmetrical. You're supposed to get it right. Um, um, logic systems are supposed to preserve truth, not just stir up symbols randomly like a Cuisinart. Um, figure things out. Um, errors need to be corrected and so on and so forth. It's basically a normative enterprise. And uh, what I want to say is semantics is deferential. Semantics defers to what's the case. So that what's the case about the system is deferent. Even if you're an artist, what's true about the system actually has to defer what, to what the world is like. Um, now, those four views, I think, actually underwrite all computational systems, just about not just GoFi systems. Um, I think it's an amazing idea. It was absolutely stunning when it came forward in the 30s and 40s. People didn't believe you could build systems that had these properties. Now it's considered utterly banal. Um, I want to put up a picture of a quote here that I, have, that I grew up learning as a kid. I don't know who said it. Every great idea of languages for most of history and obscurity has one brief moment of glory and then lives out its dying days as a platitude. And I think that this idea basically had its brief moment of glory in the beginning with Turing and so on and so forth, the beginning of the 20th century. Now everybody thinks it's boring. Um, but anyway, GoFi was built on it. Um, but GoFi failed. Or anyway, it's deemed to have failed. I'm going to actually talk about that more in a minute. Um, and the assumptions it was based on, basically people think they're wrong. Um, here are some primary critiques that were raised of, of, of GoFi. Psychologically, the brain doesn't work like a logic theorem prover with sentences in there. Um, perceptually, this is pretty interesting because this was not apparent at the beginning of AI, even when I started out. Um, fundamentally, the world is a mess. Um, people didn't realize that because they looked at it in the world and they thought it made sense. But when they first built electronic cameras and looked at the results coming from the electronic cameras, they were just completely um, obscure and, and so on and so forth. So you might look at a picture like this as a random picture. You might think you can understand this picture reasonably enough. There's a person, a woman, uh, meeting another woman in the doorway and so on and so forth. But the problem with this is you have just processed this image using a device comprising 100 billion neurons with 100 trillion interconnections that was developed over 500 million years to interpret this picture. <laughs> so you don't know what it's like that arrived on your retina such that you interpreted what arrived on your retina using that enormous amount of machinery to think that there's just somebody standing at the door. So a friend of mine, an artist, painted this picture, which is meant to be a picture that reveals to human consciousness, what it is that the world reveals to the retina prior to human consciousness processing what happens on the retina. Right? So this is meant to be what the world is really like, um, you know, doubly reverse kind of thing. So um, you process that with 100 billion neurons and 100 trillion interconnections, and it's kind of a mess. Now, I can't look at this picture. I've been in this place. Um, this is a person walking across a door. There's a pail there. This is a, 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 a door frame there. There's a wooden box there with old fragments of, of uh, wood in it and so on and so forth. And if you look at this for a while, you can start to parse it. Um, but what this, I mean, this is just meant to an ex be an example that um, perception is not so simple as all that. And the animals are impressive. Um, so that was one of the things about GoFi that collapsed. Um, and as that picture sort of shows, um, it turns out when you actually build systems and embed them in the world, that the world doesn't come chopped up into neat objects after all. AI systems tried to make special worlds that were like that at first so that they could run. 
But it was just hopeless, um, and the real world is not like that at all. Um, and epistemologically, which are the ones that I'm going to focus on more today, it basically was concluded that intelligence doesn't come from rational, articulated steps of anything like logical inference. Um, it's better understood, this is um, uh, Bert Dreyfus's phrase as uh, patterns of skillful navigation and coping being thrown into enmeshing social and personal projects. Um, so a, a kind of um, process engaged activity kind of view um, thinking emerges from an unconscious background, a horizon of ineffable knowing and sense-making. Um, now, I want to show you a little bit what this kind of horizon of sense-making might be like. This is a picture of islands in Georgian Bay. Um, it's pretty complicated. And if you were trying to articulate in language what was going on there, it would take some work. Um, but what I want to do is now um, say, suppose the islands which are above water are your words. Um, now I want to show you what's underwater. This is all of the rock structures that make the islands all interconnected and so on. And the basic intuition, I think, about the horizon of, of understanding is that our understanding actually arises from a hugely complex apparatus that actually pays attention to the sub-conceptual or sub-word structures and makes the words make sense and attempts to actually make sense out of just pure words without any of the subterranean or sub-aqua, whatever it's called structure actually were doomed to fail. Um, but then also there was this problem with common sense. There's a famous case in MIT when I was there actually of asking a medical AI system how to cure a kidney infection and it said take the kidney out and boil it. Mm -hmm. um, now <laughs> there's something right about that and there is something wrong. Um, <laughs> and what it is that's wrong is that the system just doesn't get it. And one of the things that was stunning for 20 years of AI was that systems just didn't get it. It was staggering how they couldn't get them to do much of anything except in very restricted domains without stumbling over the fact that they didn't have any common sense. And then when they tried to represent common sense explicitly in the GoFi model, very famous system, um, first tried to encode in first order logic everything in the encyclopedia, then they decided there was going to be a, a million facts, I think, or something like that, or 10 million facts. Then they decided they need to encode in first order logic um, all the facts that were not in the encyclopedia. That was another 100 million facts. Um, this process continues. <laughs> RV Guha, who did this stuff, originally went to um, Google, actually started the knowledge graph, which actually Google uses for its search engines now. Apparently, it has 7.6. Somebody in our class has said this the other day, 7.6 billion facts explicitly encoded. Um, but still, Google doesn't have any common sense. So there's actually something serious about um, this common sense thing. Um, OK, so that was basically what happened to GoFund. Now, 50 years forward, we have this new thing called deep learning. As you probably know, it was largely <coughs> credited to people in Canada, including our own Jeffrey Hinton at the Surrey University. Um, so we need to figure out what it is and how does it relate to GoFi with respect to these challenges which actually caused GoFi not to succeed in those um, enthusiasms from the uh, 70s. Um, here's the kind of picture you might see if you actually read about deep learning. Um, and I actually think this picture will probably convey nothing to you. So that's fine. Ignore it. Um, I want to tell you in words that I think are comprehensible what deep learning systems do. Um, 
four facts. The first one is that they're very good at dealing with very shallow inferences, so just a few steps, if steps at all, just a few steps, maximum 10, according to the people who actually um, originated this whole line of research, on massive amounts of data involving very large numbers of very weakly correlated variables. In contrast to logic and GoFi, which use sort of theorem proofing to deal with, I'm actually pointing this thing at the screen, I think all I do is get laser lights reflected in my eyes. Um, <laughs> logic is good at actually deeper inference on modest information involving a small number of highly correlated variables, like x implies y, or if not b and q, then r or s divided by w, whatever. Hugely strong correlations. Um, Recognizing people. GoFi thought we could recognize people by saying, well, their eyebrows are like this, and their hair cut is like this of the following 27 styles, and their hair color is you know, one of these nine shades, and so on and so forth, and it was hopeless. Um, face recognition is now extremely good. Cameras do it, and what they do is they have millions of variables about your face. Nobody can tell you what those variables are. They start out with every pixel that the screen produces, they cluster them and so on and so forth. And things are extremely weakly correlated with each other. I mean, correlations of 0.001% and so on and so forth. But it turns out if you have enough weak correlations, you can actually come to conclusions. And this is how these things, um, that's work. And I actually think if you want to take one thing away from this talk about deep learning, that's all you need to take uh, it away. And I actually mentioned this characterization of these networks to Hinton, and he didn't leave. Um, <laughs> he kind of nodded. I think they're actually, I think it's actually true. Uh, as I said, they, they, they use a huge amount of data. One of the things that's interesting is the rise of deep networks is actually a consequence of three things. It's this architecture, but it's also a post-big data phenomenon. You have to have the big data in order for these things to be trained. Um, they can be trained, which is a holy grail of AI. Nobody in GoFi had any real understanding at any depth of how to make these systems learn. These systems can actually learn staggeringly well at what they do which is mostly classification and categorization. But when they learn, they use staggering amounts of computational power. I mean, really serious amounts. Whole, um, some, of the, some of the big systems, they run on video cards, 128,000 video cards, all running um, at maximum power for three days and using up the power of a power plant kind of stuff. I mean, there's actually very serious ecological worries about the amount of power that's going into training these deep networks. Um, so anyway, that's kind of interesting. Um, but, The results are impressive. They can sex chickens, which not a lot of people can do. <laughs> they defeated the World Go Masters, the, the AlphaGo program coming out of DeepMind, which is a company that Google bought. Um, it, it, it not did originally, but it's much better than it was. The last tournament I knew about, um, seven, I think, World Grandmasters were all together playing as a unit, sort of collaborating. And they tried to play this thing, and it was actually, and basically, the, somebody who knows about these things told me that they basically, uh, it's like, oh, the, the system's perfect, as far as they can tell. Um, um, they, um, they shifted, Google shifted the Google Translate function and the website um, at translate.google.com from um, the hundreds of thousands of hours of linguist analysis of these languages to a deep learning network, and the translation abilities went way up. I've heard figures as high as 97% accuracy for translation across languages on that website. Um, as compared to human professional translators that are only at 95%. Draft 
legal papers, um, drive cars maybe. Um, we'll talk about that later. Um, put radiologists out of business, reading x-rays. That's something that Jeff Hinton has said. All the radiologists are gone. Um, we're going to talk about that too. So anyway, it's just staggering how successful these things are at the kind of perceptual classificatory uh, tasks and the tasks that rely on them. So it's 50 years later. Is this just more AI triumphalism? I actually don't think so. I've, it's not just that I've never seen the field as optimistic or as sober by what's happening. The big international AI conference is now just riven with issues of politics and social ethics and what to do about this system and stuff. They really kind of feel like they let a genie out of the bottle. I myself think that what is happening is enormously important. I think it's going to have it's going to signify changes to society more profound than anything we currently understand um, or even can imagine. So I am not um, quiescent about this stuff. I don't think it's just more hype. I think something really profound has happened. Does that mean I think these systems know how to think? I don't think so. And so, um, so that's kind of where I want to try to go today, of how to respect what it is that's staggering about what they do without over complimenting them and pretending they do things that I don't think they're up to. Um, so let's ask this. Which of the GoFi critiques does deep learning actually deal with? What about the psychological critique that the brain didn't work the way the GoFi systems did? Well, these things aren't actually neural models, but they're very close and they're inspired by neural architectures and so on and so forth. So I actually think it deals with that critique pretty well. What about the perceptual critique, that perception is simple and just animals can do it, it's not very simple? I think they deal with that pretty well too, and I'm going to give them a check mark. It's not simple. Yes, animals do it. It takes an enormous amount of sophistication to do it well, but the systems are now better perceivers than we are in a narrow sense. So we'll get to the sense later, but I think they do a pretty good job. The ontological issue about whether the world comes in terms of discrete objects, I think they deal with that square on and great. They don't assume that the world is like that. They deal with it in terms of micro-features at extraordinarily fine-grained temporal and spatial sense, and they just construct these massive data sets. And I mean massive data sets, like recognition on a face could have a hundred million, you could have a hundred million real numbers on a vector, which constitutes being Bob or Leslie or whoever. Marcus, um, so I'm going to give me a yes on that. What about the epistemological stuff, though? Um, and I don't think we want to go so fast on the epistemological stuff. Okay, here's the problem. These systems, as I say, are stupefyingly impressive, but I don't think they know what they're talking about. Not the people who talk about them. They know what they're talking about. But the systems themselves. In particular, I don't think there's any reason to suppose that any system we built today, or any system we have any idea about how to build, knows the difference between its own state, the states of its input and outputs and its memory and so on, and the state of the world that that state represents. If these systems are based on the big idea that I say GoFi was based on, but it is more general than that about what it is to have a semantically interpreted system. And for them to know what they're talking about actually means that they would actually have to have a sense of that world, not just of their representations. Um, some examples. 
this x-ray reading system that Jeff thinks is going to put the radiologist out of business, it may construct a 3D model of the lungs, but is it going to know the difference between a 3D model of the lungs and the lungs that those models are 3D models of? In fact, how could this system, who retrieves x-rays, know what a model was? Um, and also that models are deferentially subservient to what's the case. I actually doubt that AlphaGo has much idea that it's playing a game played with international experts from around the world. Or that there's a game that is different from the game, that the game it's playing is different from the representation of the game in its inputs. If somebody tells it that some move happened, and somebody says, hey, that's not what Lee Sagal, Lee Sagal was that name? did, then maybe the person will say, oops, I made a mistake. But the system's not going to know that that was a mistake. Right? It's just going to believe, basically, everything that impinges on it, because it has no sense of the world at all. Siri is an easy example. Siri can tell you about restaurants and bathrooms and traffic and thunderstorms and operating up system updates and so on and so forth. Nobody thinks Siri knows anything about what a restaurant or a bathroom or a thunderstorm is. I don't even think Siri knows anything about what an operating system update is. Um, but I think what's true of Siri is true of more systems than you might think. Um, the point is these systems, being computational, built on that original model, are semantically interpreted, in fact, constitutively semantically interpreted. That's what they do, according to us. We understand them in terms of what it is that they do in their represented worlds. They don't understand them under interpretation. I'm not saying they don't act in the world, and I'm not saying their symbols don't have any semantics. So I'm not talking about formality and all the stuff that John Searle talked about and that kind of stuff. What I'm saying is that even if the systems we build have, are built with deferential semantics, the deference is ours, not theirs. And in order to build a genuinely intelligent system, we're going to have to build a system that is itself deferential, that itself submits itself to the world that it inhabits, not just something that we hold accountable to the world that we and they inhabit. So what is this difference that I want to put all this weight on? So I just want to put a shout out. I think that's the technical term. I'm not sure I can use that in <laughs> quotes. But anyway, the John Hopeman that I talked to about many of these things over many years, um, um, unfortunately, passed away early, which was tragic. And I hadn't framed this stuff in terms of judgment and deference and so on and so forth before he passed away. So I really regret not being able to talk with him about it. But uh, we talked a long time. And as we used to laugh and say to each other, each of us would say things that the other person was about to think. Um, that's the best kind of friend. Um, so what is deference? What would it be to build an AI system that itself was deferential? That's what I want to address in the rest of this talk. Now, I'm not going to give you a theory of that, um, partly because I don't have a theory, um, but, but also because my actual project is to derive that theory from the fundamental metaphysics. And that's more than I can even attempt to, to, to give a sketch of here. So what I want to do today is the other way around. I'm going to start with people and who are already full-blooded, realized instances of semantic and ontological deference and just give you some properties that I think they have in virtue of that deference, which are properties that a system would have to have in order to be differential. Um, and in particular, I think I'll help a sketch even of a very modest issue can give a sense of that. Um, now, some of the deepest thinking on this stuff has been framed in transcendental and existential language. Um, Kantian inquiry into the forms of sensibility and understanding as conditions for the possibility of knowledge of objects as objects, and Heidegger's existential question of the possibility of being towards the being of entities. Um, 
I'm going to try to avoid that kind of fancy language here and put it basically flat-footedly, but that doesn't mean I'm not deferential to them for their understanding. And I'm going to just say, look, what would have to be true of an AI system for the most elementary thing you can imagine, for it to take an object to be an object in the world? In other words, what would it be for an AI system, not just to represent or deal with or, or beat up or construct or anything like that, something we take to be an object, but for itself to take something to be an object, for it to refer to and therefore be deferentially oriented towards that which it takes to be object. I don't think that's trivial. Not only do I not think it's trivial, I don't think taking an object to be an object is anything any computer system I know of can do. Um, I also don't think that deep learning sheds any light on what it would be to be a system that can take an object to be an object. Let me just say, in case they're triumphalists here, that doesn't mean you couldn't build a deep learning system to actually do this if you understood what it was, because you can build anything on top of a deep learning system. What I'm saying is being a deep learning system isn't per se insight or the grounds of an answer to understanding what it is to actually take an object to be an object, I think. So a number of things can be said. In fact, seven today, if I have time. OK, first, to get started at all, now I'm not saying these are listed in logical order or any even particular order. I, I mean, there's some kind of order. But, but the point is, these are just properties you have to have. One of them is you have to be oriented towards that which you represent. Not just oriented towards your representation, but oriented towards what it is that your representations actually represent in the world. One way this is commonly described is that you have to be semantically or intentionally oriented towards it. The way referring to something or talking about something is, in fact, to be semantically or intentionally oriented towards something like, I don't know, Fall Reading Week or whatever. Intentional and semantic orientation is not general enough. Life is a matter of coping and, and, and involvement in everyday projects and so on and so forth, not all theoretical reflection, as we said before. So if you wanted orientation in a wider sense, you could use the Heideggerian terminology of, be, of comporting yourself towards an object. Um, but I'm just going to talk about it as orientation. There's got to be an orientation towards that object. Um, secondly, for a system to take an object as an object, it has to be able to distinguish the object from its representation of it. It's got to actually be able to make the difference. The exact thing that I said that neither AlphaGo nor X-ray reading systems can do, as far as I know. Which is to say, these systems have to be able to distinguish appearance from reality to invoke a distinction about 17,000 years old. It's not enough. I run into this suggestion in CogSci a lot. I don't know if people will, hear, will suggest it here, but just in case. It's not enough in order to distinguish appearance from reality to have quotations or meta-level data structures so that we can take some of those representations to be representations about the world and others to be representations about its own appearances, basically. Because the problem is, in order for us to be able, or it, to understand the difference between base level representation and the middle level representation, we already have to know what the difference, what a representation was, which itself involves, if you're going to know it as a representation, you have to know the difference between appearance and reality to start with. So that's not a starter. It's got to be different from you. For you to take it to be an object, to refer to it as an object, you must take it to be out there, beyond your grasp. I think of this as my Robert Browning ethic. Um, an object, I can't, I don't remember the quote. Um, um, or what's Ammon for is the second half of it. Um, 
know, no, no. Your reach should exceed your grasp, right? Or what's a heaven for? That's right. So the reach of your orientation has to exceed what you can actually comprehend or grasp if you're going to refer to an object, or else you haven't referred to an object. So every object reference, in fact, is to that which you have to know exceeds your grasp of it. That's actually a constitutive condition. How about the system to do that? I don't know. I'm not saying we can't. I'm sure we will, but I don't know. Next, in order to take an object to be an object, in order for it to take anything as anything, and which you have to do in order to be able to distinguish it from appearance, you have to find it intelligible, or you could just say legible, in the world. What does intelligible or legible mean? Here, we can avail ourselves not only of Kant and of Heidegger, but also of John Hoagland, but not only them, but also of Kuhn and social constructivists, and a plethora of other people. To be something, to be an electron or a faux pas or an on-ramp or an ATM machine, to say nothing of being a student or a professor, is to participate in a constituted, a constituted domain, which is, in fact, constituted by regularities, rules, practices, configurations, structures, or structurations of reality, and so on and so forth in which we, as the epistemic agents, in fact, um, taking something to be something, registering it as something is how I put it, um, we have to be doing that in whatever ways are appropriate to the constituted domain in terms of what participation in that is like. So to take an electron to be an electron is actually to hold it into a whole physical scheme about what it is to be an electron. You, there isn't anything to be an electron other than being that in the world, which is different from us, which exceeds my grasp, which fits into the constituted domain of electrons and protons and, and, and all kinds of other things that I actually know less about than physicists do. Similarly, to use the sort of example John Hoagland likes, to be a knight fork in a chess game or home base in a baseball game or something, it only is to be what a home base is according to the rules and practices and plays and so on and so forth. Baseball, there's no such thing as a home base independent of that. Or a knight fork. And similarly for ATM machines and no confidence votes and arms ramps and even chairs and tomatoes. Oh. So you have to find things intelligible, things that exceed your grasp. Not only do you have to find them intelligible, you have to tell the difference between information or thoughts or ideas or presentations or perceptions and so on and so forth about them, which are right and wrong. It's not just that you have to be able to tell right from wrong. That's hard, and you do have to do that, although we don't always get it right. The more profound point is you have to be such that there is a difference between right and wrong for you. What are we such that right and wrong is an issue for us? Not just an incidental property of claims, but a normative commitment we undertake in order to get things right. That's part of what it is to find out about things. You've got to be committed to getting at the truth of it, as we say, to care. And the point is, getting it right is actually necessary in order to be able to kind of solidify this thing as the thing that it is in its constituting domain, separate from you, which is a precondition of the possibility of understanding or referring it to it at all, or to the world at all. So for an AI system, it would mean that there have to be right and wrong for it, not right and wrong for us with respect to it. Right and wrong for us with respect to it is easy. GPS systems have that property, and calculators, and, 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 and databases, and myriad other things. This is wrong, the GPS system, right? It, whatever, it drove me into a tree or something. Oh, 
you know, the database is wrong. It says I'm 196 years old. Um, the point is that's wrong because we're committed to things being right, not because the GPS is committed to things being right. This difference between right and wrong, which could be ethically right and wrong as well as truthfully right and wrong, is in fact going to be necessary if you've got this kind of, the kind of stuff I'm aiming at as being constitutive of what it is to really think. I'm not sure about driverless cars that they have to get it right and right, right and wrong for them. I actually am not convinced that driverless cars need the level of intelligence that I want to drive. Sorry, I'll talk about today here. <laughs> it might be nice if they did, but I'm not sure they'll need to. So one of the points, just to foreshadow where we're headed, is that I want to figure out what standards we need to hold what kinds of things to in order to allow them to do those sorts of things in the world. Like, what are the standards we want to hold driverless cars to? Um, but the point is, if there isn't right and wrong for the driverless car, then the driverless car doesn't, isn't actually able to refer to the world until there's no world for it. There's only a world for us that we deploy it in. And just a footnote, if any of you are troubled by my talking about right and wrong, which I can't actually utter those words in the faculty I come from, um, necessarily, um, I don't really mean right and wrong in the sense of a binarism. I, I, I basically mean, you know, whenever your cultural and, 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 and social sensitivities and your constructivist leanings and so on and so forth, the point is we don't just collapse into a kind of vapid anything goes um, or we all make it up and so on and so forth. There are standards. Take your social construction and cultural sensitivity seriously, but it, those things don't exculpate you from stakes. And what I'm trying to say is there's got to be stakes on whether you actually get it right or wrong. Also, if you, and this is what this is here, in order to get things right and wrong, you actually have to be able to make distinctions between and among three things, not just two. What's the case about something? What's not the case about it, but could have been the case about it, like this coffee cup could have been empty, but it turns out there's still coffee in it. And what couldn't be the case about it? What's just conceptually impossible? Or if not conceptually impossible, impossible according to the standards and rules and regularities that constitute the domain in which I'm practicing. Protons being gray, for example. Protons are too small for the notion of color to apply. I find that interesting, but in terms of the theory of color, it's an impossibility for programs, for programs of color. Or the number four being seen on Queen Street East this afternoon. You know, I mean, just no, right? Or this table leaping, or my computer. Suppose we said my computer leaping up three feet in the air for a minute and getting cooler as a result. That just can't happen. And you know it can't happen. And you have to know that it can't happen. That's actually one of the most interesting things about seeing all of this. Why do you need the impossible and the false in order for there to be things to, to say about there being things that are true? There's a lot to be said there. Overall, it has to do with holding the whole system together, holding the thing apart from us in order to have detachment, holding us both together in order to be in the world, and so on and so forth. But, but I think the point can be put simply in the following case. What do you do if things appear as impossible as they will? You double down, check everything, re-examine your means of discovery, find alternative explanations, and so on and so forth, and get things back on track so that you can figure out things that are correct. So if you think my computer just leapt up in the air, or your perceptual system suggested to you that it just leapt up in the air, I guarantee, probably even before it gets to consciousness, that you would conclude something else, such as you blinked without realizing it, or somebody jostled your glasses, or what you thought was a computer was actually a, I don't know, 
a poodle or something. Or that what you just took a sip of wasn't coffee. Or you know, who knows what you would actually decide. But you would basically find an alternative explanation according to which what happened is actually possible according to the regimes and regularities and practices and constituted domain, in terms of which you would then say that the thing that happened, happened. Right? The re You've got to find an intelligibility for it. Um, now, you might notice this is Kuhnian normal science and not incidental. Operate within a conceptual registration scheme. Hold objects and phenomena to account as being legible in the terms of that scheme. Take suggestions that they're not legible as evidence not, not that they're not right, but they're not even legible. As evidence that something has gone badly wrong, double down to repair the mistake, find out what happened, and find out how you can get back on track such that something's correct, such that you can then go back and find out things that are correct and thereby increase your knowledge. Recognizing impossibility is necessary in order to conduct the kinds of inquiry, the practical kinds of inquiry, which are necessary in order to figure out what's right and what's wrong, and thereby figure out what's right. So you have to have it. All right, next. Tiger is especially vehement about this, of course, as you know. Doing all these things requires commitment. You can't just incidentally know what's the case and happen to treat something as an object. There's no happening to treat something as an object. At least you can't in, in, in any rigorous, authentic sense. Now, much of our life, I don't want to go into this because other people are in better, better than I, but you know, there, there's this sense in which in ordinary, ordinary life we're enmeshed in you know, we're not actually holding ourselves to account to the full kind of epistemic and normative demands of figuring out what the world's like, although we're enmeshed in systems that actually do hold this into account. But we can get there if we want to, and if things go badly awry, then in fact we get there, and we get there fast. Um, I'm gonna have an example of that in a minute. Um, in fact, the systems we participate in need commitment to the truth of the statements and to the viability of the conceptual schemes and, and, and constituted domains in order for the statements to make in the, made in them to be true, and for the conceptual frameworks and bridges constituted domains to be viable. So that's where the existentialism comes in. And to cut a little bit, the point is simply that in order to be genuinely intelligent, an AI is going to have to be an existential being. Um, I think that falls. Sixth, very quickly, an understander, a person, an AI, whatever, can't take an object to be an object unless the understander takes itself to be a being that can take an object to be an object. You actually have to have a certain form of self-awareness in order to achieve the requisite detachment, in order to be able to see the object as other, and in order to hold yourself to account to being something that will hold the object to account. Because this normativity actually impinges on you and you have to know it. As Hoagland says, using language I'm not losing here, any disclosing it is at once a disclosing of Dasein itself and a disclosing of the being of entities. Um, okay, so you need all these things in order for there to be something. In order for a system has to exemplify all of these properties in order for there to be something that is true for it. And in order, there's something, there has to be something that is true for it in order for there to be something in the world that it takes to be an object as different from it. And these things get commitments involved in them, um, not just commitments to the object. Um, we're committed to the object in the sense that, you know, Heidegger would say we're beholden to the objects in the sense that it's only through the commitment that we can actually take it to be other and to be an object in the world. And we're also bound by them in the sense that we're committed 
buy them to the world in order to be able to take them as things that are different from us that we're beholden to. Uh, so there's this whole interlocking reciprocal structures of commitments. So this is just if you're making a little list of things that your next deep learning system is going to have to do, just put that on all the students. OK, there's one more thing I want to talk about, um, which I'm going to use a word for, and I'm going to call it the world. Um, the point is actually pretty simple. Every, even if a phenomenon makes sense on its own, whatever that could mean, unless we can hold it accountable to being part of the world and can reciprocally hold the world accountable to being the world that hosts it, and can hold ourselves accountable to be, being in that self-same world and reciprocally hold the world accountable to hosting us as well, then something's awry. In fact, the whole system's collapsing. We can't go there, and we got to get out of there or we're going to die, basically. So if you're a consci person, this doesn't just mean that you have to solve the symbol grounding problem in some simple way, that a symbol has to have a reference um, um, by kind of factual sort of correlation or something like this, right? Some, there, there are theories in cognitive science that just say that there's counterfactual correlation between the state of the system and the state of the world, and the state of the system represents the world, and, and that's all there is to it. That's a long way from being an object, according to me. I think that when we talk about systems in terms of taking things to be objects, we overestimate in a certain sense what they're doing. So if we say that a system or an infant or an animal or something, you know, loves this object, it loves this old rag doll or something like that, or it loves its mom. Um, I mean, of course, it loves its mom. The point isn't the love of the mom. The point is the taking of the mom to be an individual entity, an individual discrete objective entity in the world independent of the baby. That's what I don't think the babies can do. Um, we can describe them that way. I call this preemptive registration. Um, um, but I basically think it, it's overestimating what's going on in the systems. Really, the point is, I think, to take an object, you have to basically take it to be, to use a word some people won't like, you have to take the object to be objective, not an accident, it's the same word. In the sense, which I think is the only durable and really substantial sense of the word objective, which is it's got to be part of the world. That's the, that's the taking of the object to be objective that I think constitutes its object. So a couple of examples just quickly um, to illustrate what that mean, might be to do, but also illustrate cases where it was not true, because I think they're actually illustrative. One example, Gareth Evans in the variety of, of reference talks about location, of how, as we all know, the spatiotemporal information that we're presented with by our Visual systems and stuff is completely egocentric. It's dyadic in a certain sense. It's temporally and spatially located. You don't know where you are if you just say, I'm here. <laughs> in order to know where you are, you have to basically extract yourself from that dyke system and locate yourself in the world. Oh, I'm at Bloren England or something like that. So you've basically got to extract yourself from your own embeddedness and actually locate yourself in the wider world. And I think you actually have to do that for everything. Everything that to be what it is has to, to be anything has to be in the world. Some negative examples. I was at a talk, so I went to Duke and uh, for a while, and uh, they have a center for parapsychological research. And I went with a friend of, um, friend of mine, actually the person that introduced Jill and me. Um, and you know this guy, and he gave this talk about you know conversations across lead walls or through buildings or whatever it was like this. And I don't even remember what he talked about, but it was like that. And he had very impressive statistics and stuff. And then everybody clapped this very politely and left at the end. And the guy walked up to Ruben, our friend, and said, look, 
Can you just tell me something? Like, I read papers in psychology experiments, and my statistics are just as good as theirs, but nobody believes me. And Gavin said this thing. I thought it was brilliant. He said, look, your statistics were fine. They could be a whole lot better. They could be better than anything in psychology. Still no one's going to believe Because nobody can understand how it could be for you to be right. And I think there's something telling about that. It doesn't fit. It just isn't the world. You would have to just start over for this to be right. And that's what we're not prepared to do. Um, not always. Not always, no. Not if you're here. Oh. Another example. Um, well, we don't have time for other examples. I don't think dreams are held accountable to the world uh, in that sense. I think I don't, you know, it's like whatever. I don't know what your dreams are like. I probably don't know what, want to know what they're like. But, but for me, you know, it's just like, I don't know, there's 100 people there, and then I'm by myself on a boat, and then there's, I don't know, whatever fires are burning, and I don't know where they came from. But I don't care, whatever, whatever, whatever. It's just like whatever. I don't hold anything accountable to anything. But in the world, in the, in the, in the, when I wake up, so here's another story. I was actually in graduate school by myself. I lived with other people, but nobody was home. It was like one in the morning. I'm looking at it, watching a movie on television by myself, and the phone rings. Now, that was back in the landline days. And so I pick up the phone, and I say hello. When I pick up the phone, the following happens. The entire neighborhood goes black. All the phone. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody's on the other end of the phone. And it keeps ringing, even though I'm holding it up. And my pulse went through the roof. I mean, I was scared out of my bloody mind. Because this can't happen. It just, this wasn't the world I was in. And what did I do? I figured out a lot of things. I figured out the phone wasn't even plugged into the wall, so of course there was no one there. Of course it kept ringing. The fact that the entire neighborhood had actually had a power outage at the exact second I picked the phone up was a complete random coincidence and so on. I mean, there was nothing actually spooky going on. But the panic is what I'm telling the example for. So we're not only beholden, we're not only bound by the objects and beholden to the objects, but I think we're also beholden to and bound by the world as a whole. And that doesn't mean the whole, in the sense of being an object. The world is not an object. Um, it can't be. I think. By the world as a whole, I actually mean kind of what Tillich said about God as the ground of being. I think the ground of being is not a bad gloss on what I mean by the world as a whole. But we have to be committed to the world as a whole. And I think the point is this. We have to keep in view a sense of what's impossible as well as what's not the case in order to be able to take anything to be at all, in any, take anything to be anything at all, in order to take our views or representations to be of reality. I've already said that the only way to take something to be part of reality is to find it intelligible in terms of the rules and regularities and stuff that undergird the constituted practices in which it derives its existence. For something to be impossible means that it's incompatible with the rules and regularities that undergird the practices from which it derives its existence. But here's a trick. I mean, here's a here's a here's a kind of problem. From that, it might suggest that we actually have to hang on to the rules and regularities of our constituted practices. Absolutely, or else if we let go of them, we would die. We almost do. I actually think that's what's right about normal science. But we don't absolutely, absolutely, because in fact, the rules and regularities have to be able to change and so on and so forth. And this is, I think, Kuhnian um, scientific revolution, basically. What, do you, what happens when you actually give up on the constitutional rules and regularities of the regime in which you practice? I think we have to hold them accountable, too, as rules and regularities about practices in the world as a whole. 
So I think they, as well as the objects, as well as us, as well as our practices of taking things to be objects and so on and so forth, are all accountable to the world as a ground of being. And that's not, I think, a small condition. Okay, so we're almost done. So I can finally get to what the talk's about. Um, so I've said all of this stuff that I think is actually necessary to a kind of full-blooded human uh, understanding. What about animals? Animals are kind of accountable to the world in a certain sense, too. They take it. They have a kind of rudimentary awake awareness. I mean, it might be exquisitely precise. They might be absolutely loving and so on and so forth. I'm not saying they're not more impressive than us in certain respects. But they don't actually, I think, engage in the sorts of existentially committed practices of developing an understanding of the world as world in order they can actually have things accountable to them outside themselves and so on and so forth, um, an objectivity. They don't do that. But here's something about animals that I think is true, and it's actually good for the animals. They actually do participate in the world. And I don't know if they have existential lives, but they have lives, and they're vulnerable to the lives, and they're vulnerable to how they take the world to be, and so on and so forth. So even if their epistemic prowess is modest, there's a kind of authenticity to it. They are actually thrown and live in the world as they take it to be, in whatever sense they can take the world to be. So are we. But this is not true for computers and AIs. The reason we build computers and the reason we build AIs has to do with that initial conception I said that's broader than GoFi, which is that we actually can semantically interpret them in terms of their carrying information or whatever about the world that we inhabit. That's why they have power in our lives. But what that shows is that the information and stuff that they carry is not about stuff that matters to them. In fact, what it would be for things to matter to them would involve the entire framework of committed existential um, engagements that I think I am talking about. It might involve Dazen, if you'd like to talk about Dazen. So when we ask computers and AIs to figure things out, to decode our x-rays, to query our databases, to massage our data, to translate our languages, to, to drive our cars, it's only we who have any authentic understanding of that which their representations represent, not them. Right, so it's not, if, if you're driving this car, should avoid pedestrians. You should say, look, that's a norm on your car. Pedestrians, of course, I actually wrote pedestrian here. I don't think pedestrian is a word, but I guess I was, I don't know what I was drinking. But anyway, pedestrian is only something people do in understanding value, not cars. But the point is this, it's not clear that our driverless cars will actually be able to distinguish appearance from reality at all. It's not clear that it's not that they won't understand the pedestrian. It's not clear they'll understand anything as being in the world, independent of them. We ask computers to deal with representations and tasks that we take to be world-involving, even though the computer has no sense of the world as, word, as world, in the sense we're talking about. So what are they doing? And this is what I want to use the word reckoning for. I want to use it as a label for the kind of stuff they do the representation, manipulation, and other forms of intentionality and semantically interpreted behavior carried out by systems that are not themselves capable, in the full-blooded senses I've been talking about here, of understanding what it is that those representations are about. And I'm going to use judgment for the form of understanding I have been talking about that's capable of taking objects to be objects in the full-blooded sense and is committed to them and to the integrity of the world as a whole and beholden to them and bound by them and all of the rest. And of course, 
apply these words, well, there's Hobbes' claim that reasoning is just reckoning, which, of course, I don't believe now, um, and so on. But also, I think the word judgment is interesting. Now, there may be professional philosophers in the room. I believe I know some. In philosophy, a judgment is often taken to be an act. I judge that the grass is green. I judge that, in fact, I don't know, um, um, Toronto is in Ontario, something like that. That's not what I mean by judgment here in the first instance. In the first instance, what I mean by judgment is the sense of judgment conveyed in English when I say that person has good judgment, or that's a person of, of, of considered judgment, or what I might say if I say about somebody they lack judgment. Look, we can let them do that, but you know they just don't have good judgment, whatever. I also want to reserve the act of judging something to be so and so to be an epistemic act that is based on judgment in the sense that it's got all this existential commitment and world caring and commitment and so on and so forth behind it. And again, in case anybody thinks this, I'm not taking judgment to be a mark of the mental because Lord knows and, and, and woe is us, there is much mentality that doesn't have this full form of judgment behind it. <laughs> Some of it is even in office. <laughs> I'm also not trying to take this kind of judgment as a way of distinguishing machines from people. Because in one, thing, one sense, we're actually, I believe, we're machines in some sense of that word. But not only that, I'm not convinced we won't ultimately build synthetic systems that in fact have all of the properties that I have suggested in this talk are in fact constitutive of judgment. So I'm not trying to banish machines. What I want to do is to establish a standard on mentality such that it becomes an empirical question whether our synthetic constructions, like AIs, actually are capable of judgment. And then I want to say we should, in fact, ask before we have an AI do something, does that thing that it's doing need judgment? And if so, does the system have any judgment? I don't doubt for a minute that we're going to build systems that outstrip us in reckoning. We already do. Radiologists will get systems that are better reckoners about what kind of cancer you might be, have based on your x-ray than people. That's what none, uh, none. That's what Jeff Hinton believes is in fact going to put the radiologists out of business. And I think he's right. I think our reckoning powers are going to be surpassed by the reckoning powers of these systems. But I think if you have cancer, you need to go see a doctor with judgment. That's basically it. I don't see anything on the horizon in our intellectual imaginations that suggests we know how to build systems with judgment. Um, systems that are existentially committed to the world, that go to bat for the truth, that reject what's false, that profoundly balk at what's impossible and know the difference. Um, it's that kind of judgment, I think, that underwrites what matters about the human mind, not all human minds, but what's unique and sacred about it that we will forego at our peril. So I've got one more slide, Oop, the world. which is this. This is my only slide on ethics of AI. I think the threat that AI poses to humanity is that we will hand over to systems that can only reckon tasks the responsibility for which actually demands passionate, dispassionate, compassionate judgment. Then we're in trouble, and I think not before then. I mean, we could blow ourselves up with nuclear weapons too, but.
Okay, so thank you. That's it.